Well, thank you so much for that very, very warm welcome. I sure feel a kindred spirit with uh, Pastor, Pastor Mark. What a blessing. I've just uh, felt like we have been friends for longer than we really have. My wife and I just got in from Mexico last night. Uh, she went to sleep around 2.30. So if I appear to be discombobulated, it's because I am, all right? I, I, I don't hardly know where I'm at, but I uh, hope this will make some, some sense. Wonderful, wonderful worship here. Thank you very much. Brother Alex, thank you so much. Uh, just tremendous. Appreciate uh, that message on worldview. And we have a little, uh, we have a gift for you. So if you, you, you would like a free book on the prayer life of Jesus, this is the only time you can take your phone out. And uh, just zero in on the uh, scan code. And uh, you just put your name there, address, and they'll send you an uh, e-copy, an e-book of the prayer life of Jesus. Now, I really like the title of your conference, Stand Firm. The Bible says we're to be ready to give an answer to every man that asks us of a hope that's in us. Absolutely imperative to know our identity. Absolutely imperative to know our resources. But we're going to need more than human arguments in these latter days. What we need is the manifest presence of God. I believe the book of Acts is nothing less than a catalog of miracle after miracle. The book of Acts is a manual on standing firm in a multicultural pagan culture. Now, in the book of Acts, everything was in flux. Everything was in flux. In chapter 1, the bewildered disciples spent 10 days in an upper room prayer meeting. In Acts chapter 2, there was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts chapter 3, Peter's sermon, 3,000 conversions. Can I get a witness on that? 3,000. Acts chapter 4, the disciples were called before the uh, religious Jewish leaders. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead uh, in the early church for lying. Acts chapter 6, the Grecians murmured against the Hebrews. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. Acts chapter 8, Philip is casting out demons and performing miracles, which brings us to Acts chapter 9. Now put on your spiritual seatbelt. We're going to fly through this, and I hope it will make some sense. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Paul was persecuting the saints of God. Acts uh, chapter 9, 3 through 18, Paul got converted on the Damascus Road. Verses 19 through 25, Paul is preaching in the synagogues and the Jews are trying to kill him. There was murder going on. Acts chapter 26 through 20, or verses 26 through 28, Barnabas vouched for Paul. Acts uh, verses 27 through 29, Paul preaches boldly and the Grecians attempted to kill him. So they, they, they put Paul on a boat to Tarsus. And I want to say that the book of Acts was anything other than a welcoming atmosphere. We find ourselves in a very hostile environment. We're not only in post-Christian America, we're in post-Christian Christianity. And we've been there for about 60 years. Now I want you to look in your Bible in Acts chapter 9. We're going old school uh, the PowerPoint wouldn't work, so we're going old school. Look at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Find verse 31, if you would, please. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. And as you find that, if you'd stand to your feet for the reading of the word this afternoon, please. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Notice what the scripture says. 
Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. Now notice what it says here. Say it out loud. And walking in the fear of the Lord. Say that again. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, they were multiplied. Now in this chaotic, uh, cultural, uh, pagan uh, (laughs) situation, what was happening in the church of God? They were walking in the fear of the Lord and they were walking in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. How did the early church stand up, stand out, and stand firm amidst the chaos? They did it by walking in the immediate manifest presence of God, walking in the fear of the Lord. I want to tell you the early church had godly fear, and they also had heavenly joy. And the Bible says they were edified, they were multiplied, and God was glorified. Listen to me. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. There was a sense of the presence of God. Uh, that, that God was in their midst. There was a God consciousness. God was real to them, and there was life in the air. Amen. William Newell said, the fear of the Lord. He said, the fear of the Lord means having such a sense of the majesty and holiness of God as to make one fearful of offending him. Can I give you the deep Greek meaning of the word fear? The word fear means fear. That's what it means. It means fear. The fear of the Lord means having such a sense of the majesty and the holiness of God is to make one fearful of offending him. If we're going to stand firm in these last days, brother, we better have the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Would you bow your head for a moment? Would you give God permission to speak to you personally? Just invite the Lord to talk to you. Would you invite the Lord to speak to all of us this afternoon and for the remainder of this conference? Now, Heavenly Father, the world has a pull, the flesh has a pull, the devil has a pull. But Lord, you're stronger than all of this. And we're asking that you would talk to us personally, directly, powerfully. Oh God, what they had in the early church, Lord, may we have that prior to the return of your son. Bless your dear people. Thank you for Pastor Mark and Alex and all the rest that are participating. Oh God, put your stamp of your presence upon us this afternoon. We appeal in the name of Jesus with thanksgiving in advance for Christ's sake. Amen. You can be seated. Then had the churches rest, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. These are the twin spirits of life-giving Christianity. Wherever you have Christianity that's empowerful, you have conviction and you have celebration. The fear of the Lord is conviction. Uh, the, the, the joy of the Lord, that's the spirit of celebration. And these twin spirits are always present when God is. Now, I believe the fear of God is one of the most dominant themes in the entire Bible. There's over uh, like at least 110 references to the fear of God in the Bible. And when unholy men meet a holy God, 
there are reasons to fear. Let me give you a little background, biblical background on the fear of God if I could. There are some people in the Bible who met with God face to face. In the book of Genesis, we read of Jacob, how he had that vision of the Lord above the ladder. And what did he say? Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he said, how dreadful, how dreadful is this place. You know it must be a dreadful experience to encounter this holy God of the Bible. We read of of Moses in Exodus 34 on Mount Sinai. Tremendous lightnings, tremendous thunderings, tremendous smoke. And the Bible tells us that after spending 40 days, 40 days in the presence of God, he came down from the mount, his face literally radiated with the glory of God. And Hebrews says, so terrible was the sight. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Exceedingly fear and quake. It must be a dreadful experience to encounter this holy God of the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read this, that in the year that King Uzziah died, the prophet Isaiah said, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up. If there's any way American Christians need to see God in these days, it's how he really is. He's high, he's huge, and he's holy, and he's high, and he's lifted up. And the Bible says above that throne of God stood the seraphim. These seraphim, these holy creatures, they had six wings, two wings covering their face, two wings covering their feet, and two wings flying. And they cried around, they flew around and cried, holy, holy, holy. Uh, The Bible never says God is nice, nice, nice. The Bible never says God is peace, peace, peace. The Bible never says God is love, love, love. But it says twice that God is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphim are holy creatures in the immediate throne room of God. They're so holy, they're literally burning up in their own holiness. They're like a holy incendiary. It means flaming ones. That's what seraphim means. Two wings covering their face, two wings covering their feet, two wings flying. I find it interesting only two wings are used for service, while the other four wings are used to shield themselves from the brilliance of a holy God. It must be a dreadful experience to encounter this holy God of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 1, we find John exiled on Patmos, And here's what he said. He had this vision. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, there was one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, a golden girdle, his hair like wool, white as snow, his eyes like flames of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, his voice like the sound of many waters, and his countenance like the sun that shineth in strength. And John said, when I saw him, man, when I got a vision of him, I fell down as one that is dead. John was no enemy of Jesus. He was the beloved disciple. He was the one that put his head on the master's breast at the last table. But yet John, when he got a vision of the resurrected Christ, he didn't have a shouting spell. I'm telling you, he fell down as one that was dead. And my brother and my sister, my brother and my sister, if the presence of God is fearful when he appears in mercy... How much more fearful he must be when he shows himself to reveal our sins. I was sitting in Shelbyville, Indiana many moons ago in a hotel room right across from 
Kmart. Does anybody remember Kmart? My attention was arrested when a semi-tractor trailer pulled into the parking lot. No words on the truck. One word on the trailer, big, bold, blue letters spelling the word majesty. Majesty. And I thought, man, that's a paradox. Majesty comes to Kmart. And you know what? I think we've lived to see the day when the majesty of our great, high, and holy, huge God has been reduced to a cheap blue light special in the minds of most people who attend the better churches in our country. I say without fear of contradiction that the uh, modern view of God is in total contrast with the biblical view of God. Now let me give you some uh, ideas about the contemporary view of God. Number one, he's a harmless helper. He's a harmless helper. Like our brother said, the big man or the man upstairs or somebody up there likes me. He commands no allegiance. (laughs) He's only a crutch to lean upon. He exists to win our affections. He's a harmless helper. It's a cultural Jesus. Number two, a utilitarian deity. God is viewed as some sort of utilitarian deity. He's a cosmic chum. He's kind of like the genie that pops out of the bottle and uh, just exists to do our bidding. He exists, exists to serve mankind. Can I say something to you? The God of the Bible is more than an antidote to the problems of life. Number three, modern view of God, he's a grinning apparition. He's a grin. Remember that smile, God loves you stuff? You think Noah had that painted on the side of his boat? A grinning apparition. That Jesus is some sort of a long-haired, limp-wristed, poppy picker who wouldn't hurt a fly. It's kind of like a one-dimensional deity. God came to me the other day, Pastor Mark, and he said, Harold, I'm sick of the God loves you preaching. I'm simply sick of this God. Well, hallelujah for the love of God. We've never diminished that in the least. But that ain't the whole story. And the love of God doesn't keep people from going to hell who don't repent. I'm just here to tell you. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. Most people in the best churches have never once heard a sermon on fleeing from the wrath to come. An unhealthy familiarity with God. My wife and I, we went to uh, uh, Pigeon Forge and we went to the Dixie Stampede. They managed to get the whole line up there. They had Santa Claus, Elvis, And, of course, Jesus was right in the mix of that that trinity right there. It's amazing. It's amazing the low view of God that we have. He's some sort of a celestial good old boy. He's the bestower of the goodies. He's like a cosmic uh, vending machine. You say, well, Brother Harold, don't you think that God loves the sinner and hates the sin? Well, yeah, there's an element of truth in that. But at the judgment seat, it's not going to be any sin cast in the lake of fire. It's going to be unrepentant sinners cast into the lake of fire. I say without contradiction, we have have an inadequate conception of God in modern modern American Christianity by and large. Somebody said every problem in life is theological. It's either an ignorance or a misunderstanding about God. Look over in Romans chapter 3. Going old school here. Romans chapter 3. Look at this. This is God's autopsy of a dead society. Romans chapter 3. This is God's commentary on the human race. Now this is some pretty serious stuff here. Romans chapter 3. Look in verse 12. 
Notice what God said about the human race. Look at this, Romans 3, verse 12. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There's none that does good, no, not one. Their throat, an open grave. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of snakes, asp, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. But if you don't believe that, just watch the television for about 15 minutes. Whose mouth is full of what? Cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Is this not true? Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. Verse 18, out loud together. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18, out loud, real loud. There is no... Now, verse 18 is the reason for verses 12 through 17. Seems how they had no wholesome, healthy, biblical fear of God. They sinned with abandonment. The restraints of conscience were totally, totally undone. And, and what Paul spoke of the pagan Roman world in which he lived might be said of the church in our day. Are we living in a day when God consciousness is dying out? People think nothing of taking God's name in vain. And you don't have to curse a blue streak to use the name of God in a vain, empty, or useless way. Let me give you five Bible examples, five Bible examples of people who did not fear God. Five Bible examples of people who did not fear God. We read over in Leviticus how that God executed judgment. Literally, he devoured by fire Nadab and Abihu because they offered strange fire on the altar of the Lord. Aaron's sons, Adab and Abihu, these were priestly men. Uh, these were perhaps praying men. But here they are offering this strange fire. And my understanding is they just simply used some charcoal other than what God had commanded. And they presumed that that would be okay. But they were burned to death. Can I say that presuming on God is an evidence of a lack of the fear of the Lord? What about Hophni and Phinehas? Eli's sons ministering without the fear of God. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, the Bible says that these two characters, Hophni and Phinehas, lay with women at the tent of the congregation. They lay with women at the tent of the congregation. What does this mean? These priestly men are committing adultery with women who had come to bring sacrifices to Jehovah God. Can I say to you that immorality is an evidence of a lack of the fear of God? What about Uzzah, the Kohathite? The Bible tells us he touched the ark. The ark stumbled. The ark was about to fall over. He knew, he knew full well no human hand was to ever desecrate that sacred vessel, but he reached out his hand to steady the ark, and what happened? God struck him dead. Can I say that disobedience is an evidence of a lack of the fear of God? What about Ananias and Sapphira? What about that pair? How they lied to the Holy Spirit? You know, they went out and stole, sold a real estate holding, and they conspired together, and they came and laid at the apostles' feet, and they said, this is the price of the land. Now, they could have kept the whole thing, but they lied about what they got. And the Bible says that, uh, which one came in first? Was it Ananias? Did he come in first? I think so. Yeah, he came in first, and, uh, and old Peter said, why is Satan filled your heart to lie the Holy Ghost and... Got struck dead on the spot. 
Sapphira came waddling in late, and this is why you ought to always be on time for church services. You never know what happened prior to getting there. Repeated the same lie. What happened to her? She got struck dead as well. Can I say that dishonesty, dishonesty is an evidence of a lack of the fear of God? And what about in Corinthians where they partook unworthily of the Lord's table and many of them slept that died prematurely and many of them were sick? Can I say that taking God lightly is an evidence of a lack of the fear of God? So we have examples in the Bible of people who didn't fear God. We have rampant examples. I want to get your book, by the way. So I hope they have one left on that, uh, the Democrat thing. But anyhow, the <laughs> mammoth evidences of a lack of fear of God in our culture. We're morally insane. Who would ever have dreamed 10 years ago that this could have happened? Strong delusion is here. When our nation abandoned the sanctity of life, that was serious. Any society more concerned about the right to die than the right to live is headed in the wrong direction. Now we have infanticide. One Nobel Prize scientist said that every child born in the world should undergo a barrage of tests. If they can pass the test and meet criteria, give them a birth certificate. If not, uh, terminate them. I'm from the Commonwealth of Virginia where we don't have much common sense apparently. Our former governor, Northam, uh, said that uh, you should take the aborted child that survived and make them comfortable before you kill them. Pagan people have routinely killed their children through the, through the ages. You understand that, right? Passing through the fires of Moloch and all the rest of it. What about euthanasia? We're not talking about the young people going on a mission trip overseas, youth in Asia. What are we talking about? We're talking about uh, getting rid of the old people. A lack of the fear of God has implications on life. What about suicide? Back in the 70s, Derek Humphreys wrote that bestseller, uh, Final Exit, a, a, a book on how to commit suicide. You know, if young people are told that there's no God, and then there's no law, and then there's no meaning... So there's no hope. We shouldn't be surprised that 123 people kill themselves every day in our country. In 2023, more than 50,000 people died by suicide, the highest year ever recorded. Alex talked about transgenderism a little bit. Uh, we're on Facebook, and um, every now and then we have a post that goes, like, really viral. One to ten million. That's a rare thing, but it happens. And when that happens, it gets spread out to a larger audience. <laughs> then the lar larger audience comes back to the home page to see what you really think. And then when they find out what you really think, they tell you what they think. <laughs> I can't believe how vicious, vulgar, and vile. Here's one response. One person wrote and said, you need to get educated. Science has proven there's more than two genders. You need to get educated. New York City in 2017 had 31 gender identities. <sighs> Here we are. Here we are. I just say this. God created two genders, and the liberals came up with all the rest. <laughs> and if you don't like the way you were born, try getting born again. That'll take care of that problem right there. <laughs> it's out of hand. It's, it's out of hand. We've normalized the abnormal. 
legitimize the illegitimate, justify the unjustifiable, legalize the illegal. America is now in the third deliverance in Romans chapter 1 because they didn't glorify God as God and neither were they thankful. He gave them over to uncleanness. That's immorality. That happened in the 60s and 70s. He gave them over to vile affection. Then he gave them over uh, to a reprobate mind. Western civilization, this is a worldwide phenomenon. Jesus it looks like he's coming back, but I don't know when that's going to be, and I wouldn't dare to try to make a ridiculous speculation about it. I'm just here to tell you, we're in the third deliverance here in our nation. Well, Harold, you shouldn't be gay bashing. I'm not gay bashing. I don't hate nobody. But if you, you, you've got some problems with that, you ought to check out the urban renewal program God implemented at Sodom and Gomorrah and see how he dealt with the situation. <laughs> This is serious. This is serious. I hardly know how to act when I go in the coffee shop. And the guy is transitioning. I, I hardly know what to think. I hardly know how to act. I, 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 I'm, we're going to have to grapple with all of this. <sighs> Disrespect for authority. Juvenile delinquency, parental delinquency, illegals beating up cops in New York City. Brother, I'm just, I'm just here to tell you that, uh, that uh, this is all evidence of a lack of fear of God, the cultural chaos, the civil unrest, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. No fear of God in our society. No fear of God in the Bible. Hey, what about, what about the fear of God in the church? Is it possible Jesus is being wounded in the house of his friends? Is it possible? Wounded in the house of his friends. You know, the main problem today is not the people who don't believe the Bible. The main problem is the people who claim to believe the Bible and then live in such a way so as to deny the reality of what they say they believe. What Paul wrote about the pagan world could be said of evangelical. Uh, uh, evangelicalism has been an apostasy for years. I'm amazed that our leaders cannot discern the difference between Catholicism and born again. I'm amazed that people can't discern the difference between uh, believing the Bible, salvation by grace, and salvation by works. I'm amazed at this. But there's a blindness that has come down to us. I grew up in a liberal church, by the way. And I want to tell you, I got no truck with liberalism. I just got, got no truck with it. You know, the direction in a church or ministry is not determined by what you teach. It's determined by what you tolerate. What you tolerate is what you teach. What a church permits, it promotes. Silence is sanction. This bending the Bible around the culture. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention a few years back said, we ought to shout about pharisaical sins, but whisper about sexual sins. Wow. What kind of whisper was going on when the fire fell in Gomorrah? What kind of whisper was that? That's what I want to know. This is the age of accommodation. I mean, the covering of sin. We got Sodom in the sanctuary in many, many good good churches in this country, uh, that, well, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Listen to Malachi. A son honoreth his father. A son, this is God's last covenant word, uh, to his last word to his covenant people. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If I then be a father, 
where's my honor? If I be your master, where is my fear? A son honors his father. A servant is master. And God said, hey, if I be a fa your father, where's my honor? If I be your master, where is my fear? I believe the Bible teaches that God expects and demands obedience from his people. Jeremiah 35, God told Jeremiah to go to the Rechabites and bring them into the house of God and offer them wine to drink. So the weeping prophet, he went over there and he rounded them up. And he uh, invited the Rechabites into the house of God. He offered them wine to drink. He goes to the first guy and he says, no, thank you. He went to the second one. He said, no, thank you. He went to the third one. No, thank you. He went to all of them. Nobody took any wine. He goes through the whole bunch. And Jeremiah must have been thinking, man, did I catch these people in the midst of a festival or grieving or mourning or fasting? And finally, the leader spoke up and said, Jeremiah, we don't drink wine, period. He said, really? How long has that been going on? He said, for generations, our earthly forefather Jonadab commanded us never to drink wine, never to live in houses made with hands, and never to sow seeds. And out of respect for our forefather Jonadab, we don't drink wine, period. I can imagine Jeremiah sent the Rechabites away, and I can imagine him seeking an audience with God. Can you see him praying? Lord, you know everything. And Lord, you knew these Rechabites were not going to drink any wine. So why did you ask me to invite them into the house of God and offer them wine to drink when you knew they weren't going to drink it in the first place? And I can imagine God coming out with a bold, pungent, two-fisted statement that crippled the mouth of the prophet when he said, for one simple reason, Jeremiah, these people are implicitly obedient to an earthly father, but your people are so stiff-necked, and I happen to be their God. If I be a father, where's my honor? If I be your master, where's my fear? I got three boys, five grandchildren. Hooray on the grandchildren, amen. When my boys were growing up, you know what they called me? Daddy. I got a good ring, don't you think? You know what my grandchildren call me? Poppy. I like that man. And you know what? When your children or grandchildren uh, couch their request with the term daddy, a term of affection, or poppy, a term of it's hard to say no. Hey, poppy, can we go fishing? Well, yeah. <laughs> can we go to the arcade? Of course. <laughs> well, what do you want? But, you know, if through the years when my children especially were growing up, if... Um, if, if, if they were saying daddy this and daddy that, but there was never a trace of obedience. You know, I probably would have uh, uh, put a halt to all this, time out. Hey, wait a minute, boys. You're calling me your father. You're calling me your daddy. Hey, how about a little respect and a little obedience for the title you're giving me? And I believe God's saying the same thing to us. You call me your father. You call me your master. Where is my honor? Duncan Campbell went to the Hebrides for a 10-day meeting. He wound up staying three years. You talk about an extended crusade, brother. And by the way, I, I am not of the anti-revival uh, movement. I, I don't believe that we're in, in some sort of a predetermined uh, Laodicean 
uh, lights out, don't expect anything, half in, half out, half baked, half dead, half alive. Uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I just want to throw this out. The church of the living God came into existence in a burst of glory, and I believe the true church is going to go out in a blaze, and I reject fatalism. Absolutely reject fatalism. I mean, We've got to get over our unbelief. That's just code for unbelief. Now, now listen, he went to this meeting. He got off the boat uh, unannounced, uninvited. And they said to him, the elder said, Brother Campbell, are you walking with God? Brother Campbell, that old Scottish brogue, Brother, Brother Campbell, are you walking with God? And Campbell said, well, I can say this, I fear God. I fear God. You know, revival swept through the islands, hundreds, thousands saved. You know, they didn't consider people converted if they didn't come to the prayer meeting. America's prayer meetings are a disaster because they're problem-based instead of God-worship-based. God they're they're problem-centered instead of faith and, and, and God-centered. But anyhow... In one of his meetings, there was a man who came who was under conviction of sin. Campbell only dealt with five people in that whole three-year period, but he went to this man's house, and his wife met him at the door and said, Brother Campbell, my husband's in a terrible state of mind. She, she said, he's, uh, he's in the bedroom praying even now. And, and, and he went in, and there he, he was kneeling at the bed, and here's what the man was saying. He said, oh, God, hell is too good for me. Oh, God, hell is too good for me. You know what you call that? That's Holy Ghost conviction. It ought to be put on the endangered species list. I mean, nobody gets saved who doesn't get lost. Nobody's converted who doesn't get convicted. I mean, what in the world? What are the characteristics of the fear of God? We've got to fly through this. Hold on. Number one, here's some characteristics of the fear of God. Number one, a hatred of evil. It's a hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs 8, 19. The, when you have the fear of God, you, don't, you dread the sin itself and not just the consequences of the sin. We're not worried about ramifications when we're under conviction. We're worried about the act of treason. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Men don't do what they don't like. Boy, I sure don't. I don't like change. I don't like washing dishes. I don't like cutting grass, and I don't like changing diapers. And I ain't doing it if I can help it. I'm just telling you. I don't do what I don't like, and neither do you. And you know what? When we hate evil, we're not likely to get engaged in it. You know what has occurred to me many, many times? You know, fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I told the Lord one day. I said, "Now, Lord, you know, I must not have the fear of God, because there's some sins I don't really hate." There's some sins I really kind of like. But the fear of God is to hate evil. Number two, it's a deterrent to sin. By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. It's the only adequate basis for moral restraint. We're never going to legislate our country back. Why did it take the Republicans four years to get onto the border to investigate other than it's an election year? I ain't getting off into politics, but I'm telling you this right here. Brother, uh, uh, li listen, we're $38 trillion in debt. Who the lawmakers of our country did that That's right. with our permission. Sorry about that. Back to the message right here. <laughs> By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Number three, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. 
I came out of a liberal Methodist church, got into a red-hot, born-again, on-fire, soul-winning, <laughs> premillennial, Schofield-toting, born-again, red-hot Baptist church. You know what happened? Within a matter of a few years, the pastor started counseling his best friend's wife. Decided to leave and run off with his best friend's wife. The people of the church found out about it with tears, came and begged him in the name of God, don't do this. Please don't do this. You know what they said? You know what they said? We know what we're doing is wrong, but after we've done it, we're going to confess it, claim 1 John 1, 9, and everything's going to be all right. I don't care where you fall on the theological spectrum. That's stinking theology. And in, 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 under any circumstances, there's no fear of God in this stuff. We got guys that divorce one week uh, and, and they never miss a, a Sunday in the pulpit. What in the world is going on? I'm telling you, presuming on God is an evidence of a lack of the fear of God. Number four, it affects the fruit of the lips and the conduct of the life. Remember the Egyptian midwives, they wouldn't kill the male children because of the fear of God. Remember Nehemiah wouldn't cheat the people because of the fear of God. We should have such a reverential awe of God upon our hearts that we dare take his name upon our lips in preaching, praying, or singing. We have no frivolous use of the name of God, for thou will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. I want to give you a parable from India. This is a parable from India. There was a young man in a village engaged to be married. He was in love with this woman. As the names drew near for the marriage to take place, it became apparent that this woman was a very evil, wicked-minded person. She said to her fiancé, and what way are you going to prove to me that you really love me? He said, I'll do anything you ask. She said, if you really love me, I want you to prove it by taking your mother's life to prove that you love me more than her. He said, don't be ridiculous. My love for you is categorically different than my love for my mother. And when I marry you, you're going to be the number one person in my life. She said, no, if you want to marry me, I want you to take your mother's life. And bring me her heart in your hand as a token of my victory. He went home, the parable states, tossed it over in his mind. He decided to do it. He killed his mother. And, and then he gets the heart out of his mother's body in his hands. He goes running across the miles to take to his fiancée a symbol of her victory. As he's running through a, a thicket, he stumbles and falls. And the heart bounces out of his hands. He can't find it at first. He's frantic. And finally, he found it a broken, crumpled up mess. And the parable states as he uh, is on his knees and he's trying to piece this broken mother's heart together in his hands to take to his fiancée, suddenly a voice comes out of the heart saying, Son, are you hurt? Son, are you hurt? There's something about the parental love of God for his people that should strike a note of fear and trembling in our hearts. Jeremiah 33, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, that the nations of the earth shall hear of all the good that I'm going to do for them and shall fear and tremble because of all the good. A lot of people are upset because God allows some people to get cancer and die. I'm perplexed that God would allow me to live. <sighs> my wife, I forgot to introduce my wife, Debbie. She's the best. And uh, we were married, and she looked at me one night, and she said, Harold, why has God been so good to us? I said, well, there's no reason. <laughs> 
He's just a good God. And more than the judgment of God, the goodness of God ought to strike a note of fear and trembling in our hearts with amazement that he could ever love us. Characteristic of the fear of God, number, number four, obtaining. How do we obtain the fear of God? Well, having these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, whereby receiving a kingdom that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Look over in Psalm chapter 34 real quick. Psalm chapter 34. How do we obtain the fear of the Lord? How do we obtain the fear of the Lord? Psalm 34 has got four references to the fear of God. This is a great study, by the way. Uh, Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. How do we obtain the fear of the Lord? Well, look at this. Oh, taste and see. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusted in him. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints. There is no want to them that do what? Fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Verse 11, come ye children, hearken to me, and I will teach you what? I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desires life and loves many days? Look at what it says right here. Keep your tongue from evil. <clears throat> your tongue from speaking guile, deceit. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. How does somebody get taught the fear of God? What was this man saying? Well, he gives a few practical things here on obtaining the fear of God. Number one, restrain your tongue. Oh. Tongue's in a wet place. It's easy for it to slip, is it not? Does anybody here have a problem with your tongue? That little red devil... <laughs> Keep your tongue from evil. Derogatory speech, slander, gossip, cursing, deceit, guile, and the multitude of words that wants not sin. A post a guard, a sentry lord over my lips. You know, people that fear God, they walk carefully, speak cautiously, because they don't want to grieve God. Man, if we can be anything other than 100% honest in our speech, we don't have the fear of God. And the way to get the fear of God is, Lord, I want the fear of God. I confess I don't have the fear of God, but I'm asking for the fear of God. Admitting uh, you're wrong is the first step to getting right. Number two, after restrain your tongue, repent of your sins. Look at what it says. Depart from evil. Turn away. Turn off. Avoid. <sighs> Repentance has been purged from the American pulpit. Not one national Christian leader with a platform ever calls the churches to repent. They call on the government to repent. They call on everybody else to repent. Call on corporations to repent. What moral midgets we are when we're tolerant, we're countenancing all kinds of junk under the guise of let's keep our mailing list up and keep the contributions coming in, brother. Amen. Apparently this must be it. The times of this ignorance God wings at, but now commands all men everywhere to put away the questionable. If it's doubtful, stop it. Give God the benefit of the doubt. Oh, we we got to bring all the dark stuff into the light. We just had a men's prayer advance, 700 men 
I'm telling you, we brought a bunch of dark things out into the light. We got a bunch of unclean things under the blood. I mean, there was such a, a cleansing, such a rejoicing. Get honest, get open, get humble, get broken. Repentance is a moral reset. Number three, replace evil with good. The Bible says here, do good to him that knows to do good. And does it not to him, it is sin. When you put off, you got to put on. <laughs> when you repent, you got to replace and we need to get preoccupied with our assignment. And, and brother, brother, listen, listen. Stop sinning, start serving. In other words, love God and love your neighbor. Number, number four, redirect your focus. Seek peace. Seek peace. Pursue it. Run after it. We can learn the fear of God. I want to give you a text from Proverbs 2. Here's what Solomon said to his son. My son, if you will receive my words. Notice these verbs. If, if. You will receive my words. Hide my commandments with you so that you incline your heart unto wisdom. Apply your heart to understanding. If you cry after knowledge, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. What is this? He's not interested in casual inquiries. He's looking for diligent seekers. And brother, we had two ladies at our church back in the day. They decided they were going to seek after the fear of God. They were going to study on it. They're going to memorize verses. They're going to meet together and pray together. And they were really wanting to live out in the fear of God. And isn't that what it means right here? Cry, lift, seek, search, incline, apply. We're talking about diligent seekers here. So daily we can ask for the fear of the Lord. And sometimes you've got to pray like this. Sometimes you got to, by faith, receive it before you feel it. Amen. Now, Lord, I don't sense much cooking in my heart, but I'm asking you to put the fear of God in my heart. And, Lord, even though I don't really sense anything, by faith, I'm believing that you're integrating and instilling this holy fear in my heart. Amen. Romans says there's no fear of God before their eyes. Can I ask myself? Uh, can I ask you? A question, is there a fear of God before your eyes? Coming home last night on the plane, looking at a movie, really interested in the content of a biographical thing, but not good. You know what revival is? An awareness of the presence of God. Receive, hide, incline, apply, cry, lift, seek, search. Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the true knowledge of God. How many would uh, agree with this statement? How many of you sense that there's a lack of the fear of God in the United States of America? How many, how many, how many sense that? You feel that? How many of you sense that by and large, not all together, but there's a lack of the fear of God in the so-called churches. Of, 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 how, how do you, you sense this? How many would be honest with me and say, I believe there's a lack of fear of God in my own soul. Do, do you sense this? I mean, how come I can live with this heightened awareness of God's manifest presence 24? I, I don't know, but, but I want to. Now, I know we're, we're out of time, but can we pray? Would that be okay? I, I think we ought to cry out to God.
and ask us to send a baptism of the biblical, holy, healthy fear of the Lord in our hearts, in our homes, in our churches. Could, could we pray like that? Why don't you pair up with one other person, maybe family if you want to, or men with men, women with women, and let's just spend a few moments interceding for what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Stand to your feet if you would. Find somebody, and let's pair up in groups of two and spend a little time praying together now.